10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The Treehouse of Liberty podcast is hosted by Jason Fornwald and comes to you from the bright red corner of the bright blue state of Maryland. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome into another episode of the Treehouse of Liberty podcast. I am your host, Jason Fornwald, and thank you so much for deciding to join me once again. It is my high honor and privilege to have you here, and I mean that sincerely. Um, I would be completely remiss if I didn't talk about what was going on in this country right now, um, starting with the flat-out roadside execution of Mr. George Floyd. Um, There is absolutely no excuse for a situation like that. I spent some humble time as a police officer myself. I know what positional asphyxia is. Every police officer in this country does. Um, you cannot handcuff someone and leave them on their stomach for an extended period of time, let alone put your knee on one of the most fragile parts of their body uh, for almost nine minutes. I mean, this was just a flat-out execution. There is no excuse for it. There is no explanation for it. I don't care what happened before the video started. Um, I don't care what kind of resistance Mr. Floyd was or was not putting up. It doesn't matter. Um, I've been in situations where I've had suspects fight me, and I understand the temptation when you get them handcuffed and everything's over to take that one last shot, and you can't do that. I mean, you simply can't do that. And certainly, over that period of time, um, any of that rage, any of that adrenaline that you had from whatever took place before that, if there even was any in this case, But whatever adrenaline you had before that has worn off, and you have the time to start thinking like a rational human being again instead of being in that fight-or-flight mode. And fortunately, we're un for police officers. They have to be in that fight mode whenever something um, does kick off and somebody is resisting arrest. Um, But like I said, I mean, I, I can't see anything in the video that I saw that would indicate that Mr. Floyd was continuing to fight, that he was resisting in any way. Um, And when you hear a grown man, um, you know, and and one in the physical condition that Mr. Floyd was, I mean, he's a a big guy. I mean, he obviously worked out a lot. Um, When you hear him start to plead for his mother, um, if you can hear that and not have tears in your eyes, you don't have a soul. Um, It really is that simple. I I was so thoroughly disgusted by what I saw um, that I don't know that I'll ever quite be able to put it into words, although when you have a podcast, that's kind of what you're expected to do. I just don't feel like there are the words to describe what I witnessed and what we've all witnessed. Um, It just, it's disgusting. I mean, it is absolutely disgusting. And... One of the things that really frustrates me when there's a case like this, and this case is unique. I mean, usually we don't see a flat-out execution and and deliberate homicide by a police officer without cause. But, you know, one of the things that really aggravates me about this situation is that I have friends who still work in law enforcement. Um, My girlfriend's son is a trooper here. And when a police officer behaves like this, it makes every officer in the country less safe. 
it doesn't matter whether they're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, if they have a badge on, it makes them less safe. And that's not something that I'm willing to just accept. Um, Derek Chauvin, I, I, I don't know what I'd even say if I had the opportunity to talk to him, but it would be a very long conversation about the full consequences of his actions. You know, it's, it's hideous and heinous enough to take a man's life for no reason, but when you put 800,000 people at risk because of your actions, um, there's just no justification, and there there never will be. Um, and of course, you know, Derek Chauvin isn't representative of the vast and overwhelming majority of the 800,000 men and women that put their uniform on every day in this country. Um, I was doing some numbers just for myself, and you figure there's 800,000 cops in the United States. You figure each of them has four contacts a day. That's probably on the low side, but we'll roll with four. That's 3.2 million police contacts with citizens of the United States every day. That is 96 million contacts in a month. That is 1.15 billion contacts every year. 1,150,000,000 contacts every year. And how often do we have a case like this? You know, one is too many, and please don't misunderstand that. In, in no way am I trying to minimize what was done to Mr. Floyd. Um, the, as I said, there is no excuse, there's no explanation. You know, I, I don't care what that police officer says in court. I even hate saying his name. Um, I don't care what he says in court, what his explanation is, what his defense is. Um, he, he flat out executed that man. But when you look at the number of contacts that police officers have with our citizenry over the course of the year, again, 1.5 billion contacts, and again, that's probably on the low side. The fact that these things happen as rarely as they do is something that in some way we should all be thankful for. And I know it's hard to be thankful at this point in time, you know, when we've watched a, man, watched a man flat out murdered by another man with a badge on. Um, but the, the number of bad cops, truly bad cops in this country, and certainly racist cops in this country, is so minuscule. Um, and these kinds of heinous actions are so rare that I do think it is something to be thankful for in some way. I mean, law enforcement is no different than any other career. You know, you've, you've got bad teachers, you've got bad nurses, although I haven't run into too many of them, thankfully. Um, got a lot of respect for nurses, as my mother is one. But, you know, every profession has its bad apples. And unfortunately, when that happens in law enforcement, and in nursing too, I guess, um, the results are, are catastrophic. Um, I can't think of a more catastrophic result than someone losing his life. Um, but I think to extrapolate that into all police officers are racist, you know, the entire United States is systemically racist, I think is unfair. Um, are there racist people in the United States? Of course there are. Of course there are. There are racists on all sides. Um, 
granted, it's it's more difficult when you look at Caucasians because of the history of the United States. Um, as great as we are and as many great things as this country has accomplished and as many times as we have stared into the face of evil and defeated it, um, there are some pretty hideous moments in our existence, and we have to be honest about that. Um, owning another human being is a, is a thought that I just can't, I can't even wrap my head around. You know, it's like I'm one of those people who was born and raised to respect human life, no matter who they are. Um, to, to see anyone that you come in contact with as a sovereign citizen, an important human being. Um, and that is the way I try to look at things. Do I always succeed? Absolutely not. Does anybody always succeed in that? I don't think so. And I don't think it matters what shade you are. You are going to fail at that at some point. And it's not something to be proud of. It's something to learn from and try not to do it again. Um, we have to look at our fellow Americans as our brothers and sisters, period. I mean, that's not even open for debate. And I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their socioeconomic background is. I don't care what walk of life they come from. You know, we, we have to look at each other as brother and sister Americans. You know, the, the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. You know, do we take that to heart? I think most of us try. I think there are times that we fail. You know, I mean, do I look at the gangbangers that are shooting up their own communities as equal to me? I probably don't all the time, to be honest with you. Um, it does bother me that 92% of the time when a black person is killed, it's by another black person. And that doesn't minimize what I have to say about the issues that we do have in law enforcement, the issues that we do have with racist people in the United States. You know, it doesn't absolve them. It doesn't fix the problem. But at the same time, you know, only looking at, you know, it, what is being called systemic racism, and I'm sorry, I don't think that exists anymore, but what is being called that, to only look at that does a great disservice to our brother and sister Americans. You know, 92% is a big number. You know, if, if there was something that was a 92% threat to my life, I'm going to not look at something that is a 0.3% threat to my life and focus on that. You know, a, a dead person of any shade is a dead person of any shade really doesn't matter who kills them. You know, it's still a grieving family. It's still a, a human life lost. It's a person with a soul and a purpose. And it, it breaks my heart when these things happen, no matter who it is. Um, you know, I, I look at David Dorn, you know, retired police captain, 27 years in law enforcement, and a black man, and he was killed by rioters and looters trying to protect a friend of his pawn shop. You know, does it matter who killed him? Not really. Is he still gone? Is his family still mourning? Of course they are. 
But it's like, why isn't, why doesn't his name matter? Why isn't he being talked about? Why isn't how he died and who he was killed by an issue? It's like we can't avoid any part of this. There are racist white people in this country. There are racist police officers. You know, but it's like that's a very small fraction of who we are. You know, I, I live in a small town in rural Appalachia. I don't personally know a white person who's a racist. For that matter, I don't know any person of any shade who's a racist, and thank God I don't. You know, because racist and liars were the two things that I was brought up to be most loathsome of. And I am. You know, on a, on a personal side, you know, my granddad was the best man I've ever known. You know, he's first wave D-Day vet, Omaha Beach. Um, he was the sweetest human being I've ever known. And how he could go through that hell and, you know, just show to me, five-year-old me, who doesn't have a clue, you know, that he was able to be just sweet and loving and genuine and caring and compassionate is still completely beyond me. I don't think I'm man enough to have lived through the hell that he did and come back and be a good, well-adjusted person. But his brother, my Uncle Bill, actually was the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan for the state of Maryland at that time. Now this is 70, my granddad passed away when I was five, this was 79. Uh, 74 to 79, that I had the potential to be around him and he was serving in that god-awful capacity. Um, and, and we would go over to visit my granddad. And again, like I said, I mean, he was, he was the most incredible man you'd ever want to meet. I loved and just cherished every second that I had with him. I knew I was with someone special, even as young as I was. Um, but when Uncle Bill would come around, my mom would grab both my brother and I by the arms and drag us out to the car and we'd leave. She wouldn't say a word. She'd take us out and we would leave. And it wasn't until my teenage years that, you know, those moments popped back into my head and I asked her, you know, Mom, why, when Uncle Bill came over, you know, did we always leave like the house was on fire? And she sat me down and she explained to me the reasoning for that and the beliefs that Uncle Bill held. You know, thank God, my mom decided to stop that ideology from continuing in our family and in me personally. I mean, as a five-year-old, if you know you, you have an adult that you're taught to respect, I'm telling you that black people are evil and they deserve to be lynched and, you know, all of these horrible things. Does it make an impression? Is it something that you accept as gospel because you realize that you don't know anything about the world and, well, here's this man that's been through everything and he's telling you that that's true? I don't know that at that age I would have been able to 
make a decision for myself and realize that, you know, this is just wrong. This is all just wrong. Um, and so I'm extremely grateful for the fact that my mother ensured that I wasn't going to be raised around that mentality. And it doesn't escape me that this is how recently we have had these kinds of issues. You know, I mean, we're talking two generations back in my family. And, you know, obviously it had stopped for my mother. I don't know exactly how, to be honest with you. Whether she made the conscious choice or, you know, she was taught better than generations previously had been or exactly what it was. But thankfully she had made that decision in her mind that she wasn't going to accept that ideology and she was going to make damn sure that her kids didn't either. And my brother and I are extremely fortunate to have been raised by a woman who stopped the cycle of racism in our family. She single-handedly stopped it. Um, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to express my gratitude completely enough for that. You know, again, I mean, I, I could have grown up an entirely different person. And thank God I didn't. You know, I mean, I, I... Do you ever lose that once you've gotten it? You know, do you ever learn to be a better person once you're not? And thankfully, that's something that I don't have to think about. Because, like I said, my mom made that decision, and, and thank God it stuck. It frustrates me that someone who looks at life the way I do, and I like to think that as far as race goes, I have adopted my mother's mentality, which I think is the correct way to look at these things. Um, and it's certainly better than a Klansman would. Um, and I don't want to sit here and rag on Uncle Bill. I mean, he's deceased and he's not here to defend himself. And all that fun stuff, I don't know how you could, you know, defend yourself being, you know, the, the head of the most heinous racist organization in my state um, and being the one that everybody reported to. Um, it's an embarrassing part of our family history. And it's certainly one that I'm not proud of and I, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't like to talk about for obvious reasons. But I talk about it now only to make the point that I've been taught better and I've been raised better. And my kids are being raised better. And the people around me are hearing better. Um, and I, I think that's important to acknowledge. You know, it's funny when I, when I talk to a black person who is, you know, 60, 65, 70, older than that, um, I, I look at them a little differently, not as a human being, but in terms of what they have experienced in their life in this country. It, as I said before, it, it's not all proud. It's not all good. The United States of America has accomplished a lot of great things. But when I realize that I'm talking to someone who lived through segregation 
you know, who had a white water fountain, and I hate to even say this word, but a colored water fountain. You know, it's a humiliating part of our history. It's a disgraceful part of our history. And I like when I have the opportunity to talk to those people and let them explain to me what things were actually like. You know, I, I think I can have an idea. Um, but if you haven't had that experience of being treated like a second-class citizen, you really don't understand. And I can't understand fully. Um, I, I also don't buy into the, you're white, so you can't understand. You know, I, I think white people are capable of empathy. I think most people are. I think all people are, if they choose to be. Um, but it's like, you know, I, I remember I remember the days of my grandmother telling me about going to the movie theater and how she and my granddad would sit in the lower level, you know, and they would get to enjoy the film, and up in the balcony behind them were any of the black people that wanted to come see the film. And she explained to me that that's where the expression peanut gallery came from because she said they would sit up there and eat peanuts and throw their shells down on the floor. You know, it's like, I, I can't really comprehend what that must have been like. And I'm glad I can't. You know, I've not grown up in a United States where there were first and second and third class citizens. And I think that's something that is unique to us. I think the United States as a whole is very able to learn from where we've come from and ensure that that is not going to be where we're going in cases where we're wrong. And in terms of race, we've been incredibly wrong. I mean, there's absolutely no disputing that. I can't imagine another human being being property. I mean, it's like, where does, where does the concept that that's okay even come from? And I know that slavery is not unique to the United States. It's not unique to black people. But in this country, it is, and that's what matters to me. You know, I mean, my God, the Egyptians had Jewish slaves before Jesus was born. So, you know, there's, there's no race, there's no faith, there's no anything that's been exempted from slavery throughout human history. And it's vile, and it's repulsive, and we should be disgusted by it wherever it happens. But the fact that it happened here in the United States, where again... You know, our founders wrote that letter to King George that said, we believe that all men are created equal. And then we certainly treated a lot of men and women like they weren't equal. And I do believe that's changed. You know, I'm not a fan of affirmative action, personally. I do believe that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was absolutely correct when he said that he wanted his little kids not to be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I do think that people in the United States should succeed or fail based solely on their ability. You know, but we've gone a long way to right our wrongs. You know, we have affirmative action that gives preference in hiring and scholarship. You know, we still have HBCUs, those institutions that are, 
you know, 90 plus percent black, most of them. You know, and it's like we have race-based scholarships at our colleges. If you're black, Asian, Hispanic, American Indian, basically anything but a white person. And it's like in some ways I feel like white America now is paying for the sins of our fathers. And I can't see that as being right either. But I think this country does a good job of atoning for our sins, even the most massive ones that we have committed as a nation. And it would be awfully damned hard to argue that there was a bigger one than slavery. It would be hard to argue that there are bigger ones than segregation. Treating our fellow man as they're less than us. But I think we're trying. And I think we've made massive strides. You know, 13% of our population did not elect a black president. You know, if America's as racist as we're told, are we going to put a man who identifies as black in the highest office on planet Earth? Not a chance. I mean, there's just not a chance. And that doesn't absolve all of our sins. I'm not trying to say that, you know, because black people can do anything that they want to do now that, you know, it somehow fixes slavery or segregation or, you know, any of our past sins. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. But I think to be able to take a hard look at ourselves and say, hey, this was wrong. What can we do to fix it? And be well down that road to fixing it is a big deal. And I guess that's why it frustrates me so much when I hear about systemic racism, when I hear that America's a racist country, you know, all of those things. It's like, look, you know, I'm here to support you. I was irate when George Floyd died. I want to pull that switch myself and see him executed. And then you're going to turn around and tell me that I'm racist. And I'm going to watch my cities burn. And I'm going to watch 17 people be murdered and 700 people injured. And scores and scores and scores of cops getting serious injuries in these riots. It's like, if you want to turn me off to your cause, that's the best way to do it. But I really think that there are a few steps that we need to take. One, we need to be honest with ourselves in every part of this. Where there are bad cops, where there are racist cops, where there are abusive cops, they need to be gone and prosecuted to the full extent if that's what we need to do, if the situation warrants it. I think we need to take a look at some of our black communities in our major cities. You know, Chicago just a couple of weeks ago broke its record for the number of people killed in one day with 18. All 18 of them were black. All 18 of them were killed by black suspects. That's a problem. I don't want to see human life of any shade taken by anyone. Let's address it all. Stop the lie that America is a racist country. Stop the lie that things are the way they used to be. Acknowledge that they're not. Thank God that they're not. 
And let's take a look at the problem, all of it, and solve it for our brother and sister Americans. I told you guys a little bit about my grandfather in the last segment, and especially with the 76th anniversary of the D-Day invasion being marked this past Sunday, um, I wanted to talk about him a little bit more. Um, Staff Sergeant Charles Lacey, went by Chick Lowe, uh, was my granddad. He was in the first wave on Omaha Beach. Um, as you probably know, over half of those boys didn't come back. Um, he did through his own ability and the grace of God. Um, and when he got back here, he was simply the most beautiful family man you would ever want to meet. I mean, he was just an incredible, beautiful human being. Um, when I think about some of the stupid things that I've been through in my life that I consider to be major and how hateful and spiteful I have become at times, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, I'm sure he struggled with it at times away from me. Um, what he had seen and what he'd been through, I can't imagine not struggling with that, but I never saw it. He called me his humdinger. He always treated me like gold. He was always excited to see me, um, and he, he just made a little kid feel like the most important human being on the planet, which was absolutely incredible. The story of him meeting my grandmother is just beyond words. <laughs> um, my granddad was in... England training for the D-Day invasion and my grandmother went to visit her father at the Marine Corps Hospital in Crisfield, Maryland on the Eastern Shore and at the same time my grandfather's brothers were in visiting their dad uh, and they were in the same hospital room and they saw my grandmother walk in and they were just blown away. She was gorgeous. I mean just absolutely beautiful and they convinced her to write a letter to my grandfather and she did, and they wrote back and forth through the course of the entire war. Um, we're fortunate enough to have a lot of letters that they sent back and forth. Thank God my grandmother kept almost everything. Um, and the, the penmanship and the language that they used was just incredible. I mean, there was none of this LOL, you know, you for you, and, you know, what, W-U-T, you know, and, and all of those things that so many people use now. It was just, I mean, it's like you were reading a love story written by two professional authors, um, their letters were just incredible, and I get tears in my eyes when I hold them and read them. Um, it was amazing because my granddad actually proposed to my grandmother in a letter, and she accepted in the letter, and he wired money to my great-grandmother to take my grandmother shopping for her engagement ring. And they found it, and they bought it, and... The first time he saw it on her hand was in a black and white picture that she mailed to him. And she had circled the ring and just wrote on there, my ring. And I get chills every time I, I even think about this story because it's something that just couldn't ever happen today. You know, it's like now they would be Skyping back and forth and, you know, there would be no record of how things actually happened and... You know, it's it's just a story that can't happen today. Um, and then, you know, after the war, um, my granddad came back home and jumped on a train, and 
he got off at the uh, the station there in Crisfield, and she wasn't there. <laughs> she she thought his train was arriving later in the day. Well, thankfully, Crisfield's not a very big place, and so he found my grandmother not long after that, and went back to his father's house, took her to his father's house, and they had the the preacher already there, and. You know, within minutes of meeting each other for the first time, they got married right there in my granddad's father's house. And my grandmother said it was just amazing. She said that my granddad's father was out on the street waving everybody in, yelling, hey, everybody, chick's getting married, you know, come on over. And Chrisville's such a cool little town. Like, even now, you know, there's there's probably a thousand people there at the most. They all have nicknames that they go by. Like I said, my grandfather went by Chick. His brothers were Hick and Pick, um, you know, and and that's just the way it was. And you know, you could pull anybody off the street; they would all know the family. You know, everybody knew each other, um, and they were all there to celebrate with my grandmother and grandfather. And you know, she's passed now as well. God rest them both. But um, you know, she said from then on, it was just it was everything she wanted her life to be, and. I'm so thankful it was that way for both of them. Um, but I just want to give my most heartfelt, deepest gratitude to all of our boys that laid their lives down on those beaches, um, all of those boys that turned the tide of the war and decided that Adolf Hitler was not going to control this planet. Um, without them, I don't know where we would be. Um, I just can't imagine having the guts to get on that landing craft in the first place and then wade through those waters, you know. And by the time a lot of those boys got to the shore, you know, the, the shoreline was already red, you know, because so many of those guys didn't even really get up on the beach. If you've ever seen the first scene of Saving Private Ryan, I mean, you know, at least on some level, um, you know, how how just brutal it was. Um, but yeah, I, I am, I am so thankful for, for those young men who turned the tide of everything and ensured that this great American experiment would continue. And I hope we'll continue to make it better. We deserve it. Our brother and sister Americans deserve it. And the men and women who have left it for us deserve it more than anyone. And so that's going to do it for another episode of the Treehouse of Liberty podcast. I have been, as always, your host, Jason Fornwald. Thank you so very much for joining me once again. As you guys know, I always like your feedback, especially if you disagree with me. I want to hear from you. Um, there's a couple of ways you can contact me. I am at Treehouse1776, at Treehouse1776 on Twitter. It's also the Treehouse of Liberty podcast page on Facebook. Or if you choose, you can send me an email. My email address is jdf as in Frank, O-R-N as in Nancy, W-A-L-T as in Tom, at gmail.com. If you would, when you send me a message, please include listener commentary. Listener commentary either as the title of your email or the first part of your message. Guys, thank you so much for being here again. Have faith, stay hopeful, and I'll talk to you soon.